This is The Rounds Table. Hey there, Rounds Table listeners. Thanks for joining us this week. we got a great show lined up for you, and I believe that our co-host is going to blow a hole in medical literature and a practice-changing study. So stay tuned, because I am joined by Dr. Mike Fralick, who is a fellow at the Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston in pharmacoepidemiology. Dr. Fralick, thank you for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me, Kieran. So let's jump in, as you know I like to do. Mike, why don't you introduce your article, and it's a doozy. Sure. So this study was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in September of 2017 by Sundergaard et al., and it was a PFO closure or antiplatelet therapy for cryptogenic stroke. A controversial topic that's been debated for years now about whether to close these in cryptogenic stroke or not. Mike, what's the bottom line from this study? Uh, The bottom line from this study is that in patients with cryptogenic stroke, um, we should be looking for a PFO, and if found, these patients should definitely be referred for PFO closure. Interesting. Let's unpack that a little further. Frame it for us. We sort of gave you a little taste, but why is this an important question? What do we know about PFOs and cryptogenic stroke? So it's an important question because I can think of many times where I've been on service or as a resident and teaching more junior medical trainees that you can more or less ignore uh, a PFO if found in a patient who has a stroke. And like uh, many times before, I was very wrong. Um, The consensus up until now was more or less that if somebody has a stroke and there's a PFO that's detected, there isn't really any change to the management. But this study and a couple others published in this edition of the New England really changes that. Hmm. All right. And I apologize, listeners, if we haven't defined what a PFO is. We love using three-letter acronyms. It's a patent foramenal valley which is an intraatrial communication whereby uh, emboli can travel from one side to the other uh, and cause a stroke ultimately. Mike, what was the design of one of the three trials that you chose to cover and summarize for us? Sure. So this was an industry-sponsored, multinational, open-label, uh, randomized trial of nearly 700 patients with cryptogenic stroke. And quite simply, they were randomized to either uh, PFO closure plus an antiplatelet drug, or just an antiplatelet drug. Okay. And who were the patients that they decided to include in this trial? So for the patient selection criteria, on those between the ages of 18 to 58, let's just say 60, make it easy, um, and they had to have had the cryptogenic stroke within the 180 days prior. Obviously, you're wondering, well, how on earth did they define a cryptogenic stroke? So the details for that, um, they ruled out any large atherosclerotic disease of the arteries. So if on the CT angiogram there was blockage in greater than 50%, they would have been excluded. If the patients had evidence of cardioembolic disease, such as AFib, they would not have entered the study, or a hypercoagulable disorder, or if they just had a small lacunar infarct. Again, um, that would not be considered a, a cryptogenic stroke. So we know in the prior uh, studies around cryptogenic stroke, they've done some prolonged arrhythmia uh, monitoring to detect essentially undetected AFib. Did they do that in this study? That's a good question. Um, They didn't. And that's mainly because this trial, like other trials, they predated that um, uh, New England Journal of Medicine study by Dr. Kapral. So that just wasn't part of anyone's routine practice. So this was not prolonged monitoring. And of course, I should also mention it. How could I forget? All of these patients had a trans 
esophageal echo or a TEE where they had to have a PFO with evidence of right to left shunt. And for the most part, these were fairly large PFOs. So that's what the patients had to have to be included in the study. That's uh, UFC, unbelievably fantastically cool. Another three-letter acronym on top of the ones we've thrown around. So I understand who they've included and excluded. What was the intervention or how did they treat these PFOs? Sure. So as mentioned, for the individuals who were randomized to have um, their PFO closed, it was done within 90 days of randomization. So just so we're all on the same sort of clock page here, that could have been up to 270 days after their stroke. For the patients who had a PFO closure, they got clopidogrel for a few days and thereafter received either aspirin or Plavix or dipyrimidol plus aspirin, but it was just a single antiplatelet agent. And of course, as mentioned, for the antiplatelet group, they just got one antiplatelet agent and no PFO closure. And then in terms of how often the procedure itself was a success, in more than 98% of the patients who had an attempted PFO closure, it was uh, successful. And did they include any patients who received therapeutic anticoagulation beyond antiplatelets, so to speak? Oh, good question. If they had a reason for anticoagulation, they would not have been included in the study. That's definitely an important exclusion criteria, um, probably the most important one uh, of them all. A couple others were uncontrolled diabetes or uncontrolled uh, hypertension. And how did they follow these patients up to ascertain whether they had a stroke secondarily or not? Uh, good question. So they were followed quite closely. Everyone, regardless of whether or not you had your PFO closed, um, saw a neurologist a month after. And then on average, every six months or so, um, everyone was followed for a minimum of two years, but to a maximum of five years. For the patients who had a PFO closed, they underwent additional echocardiograms to assess the closure. And I should mention that although the device was successfully implanted 98, 99% of the time, they also looked to see, did it completely close the PFO? And it was only successful at doing that approximately 76% of the time. So ultimately, since we had two years of follow-up for everyone, by year two of follow-up, everyone had an MRI and they were assessed by a neurologist again at that point in time for clinical symptoms of a stroke. Okay. And so you know, formally speaking, what was their defined primary outcome? So initially their primary outcome was just like freedom from clinical stroke is what they called it, which really can be just thought of as a risk of another stroke, but it had to be a clinical one. However, they were slow to accrue, so they actually turned one of their secondary endpoints into a co-primary outcome. So now it was freedom from clinical stroke and the incidence of new stroke, which could be defined either clinically or as noted on that MRI that everyone got two years after they entered the study. I always like studies that combine sort of historical features or clinical symptoms, as they call it, and an objective measure together. So it's just a nicer fit. All right, Mike, what did they find? So the patients who were included, the average age was 45, 60% were male, and 80% of them had moderate to large interatrial PFOs. These weren't small, tiny little PFOs. They were very sizable, and a fifth of them had an atrial septal aneurysm, which is also a higher risk feature. 
as you probably imagine, you know, these patients had cryptogenic stroke. They didn't typically have the classic risk factors for stroke. So only 25% had hypertension and only about 10% had a past stroke. Yeah, it sounds like a patient I recognize. And, you know, you see them few and far between, but we have come across a few cryptogenic strokes in my training. And that sounds like somebody that I know or have seen before. So tell me about the actual endpoints. You told us about the success of the PFO closures. What was the rate of clinical stroke in the two arms? Sure. So in the arm that had the PFO closed, the rate of clinical stroke was approximately 1%. That was six patients out of 440 some odd patients. And then in the group that didn't have a PFO closure, the rate of clinical stroke was approximately 5% or 12 people out of 220 some odd people. So that's very impressive and corresponds to a hazard ratio of 0.2. To contextualize that, if the hazard ratio were 0.7, I'd be impressed. If it was 0.5, I'd be really impressed. Um, It's not often we ever see hazard ratios this low unless you've made a mistake or something in your code when you're programming or some sort of analysis. So pretty impressive. And then there was also a 50% reduction in the other co-primary endpoint, which included new stroke clinically or on uh, MRIs. So that was pretty impressive by my account. Yeah, the magnitude of the effect, you certainly can't ignore it, and it definitely lends credence to a real finding. Um, Any points you wanted to highlight that you thought were particularly interesting? Yeah, I I found it interesting in the um, subgroup analyses, pre-planned and some of them not pre-planned. It seemed like men were more likely to benefit from PFO. I'm not sure why that is, but certainly the larger the PFO, there was a fairly clear signal of larger effect size. So I found that interesting. And then also the medical treatment group, for whatever reason, were more likely to get Plavix, which is interesting. I think Plavix is probably a little bit more effective than aspirin. So it just goes to show that this PFO closure really worked and it's not as if they got, you know, an inferior antiplatelet and maybe that's what was driving the effect size. So I thought those were kind of interesting. Yeah. So, you know, we're talking about medical treatment with antithrombotic therapy versus a surgical type procedure in the closure of the PFO. What about the safety outcomes? Did we see any concerns on that end? Yeah, for sure. So interestingly, the rates of serious adverse events were similar. If you had your PFO closed or if you didn't, um, there were two deaths in the PFO group and none in the non-PFO closure. And I think that's important to mention because this wasn't a benign procedure. So for example, one patient had an aortic dissection from their PFO closed In other studies, there have been many reports of um, pericardial effusion, tamponade, but in this study that wasn't noticed. So, you know, not common, quite rare, but that's still very important. Um, The biggest risk, and similar to past studies, is a risk of atrial fibrillation. So patients who had their PFO closed were more likely to develop atrial fibrillation after it was closed. Some of it was transient and some of it was prolonged, but I mean, that's a massive risk factor for stroke. So not ideal if you're causing AFib after closing a PFO. Yeah. And any idea about how they dealt with this new onset AFib following the closure? Did they anticoagulate these individuals beyond an antiplatelet? It's a really good question. And clinically, I'm sure it's something that's going to arise. And what do we do in this situation? 
there was very limited information even about what percentage of these people just had transient atrial fibrillation and uh, no details I could find, not even in the appendix of were these patients treated differently because that's massively important. Obviously, if they went on to get anticoagulation, you know, you'd expect to see a larger effect size in that group. Right. Any limitations that you were concerned about in this trial, Mike? So definitely there is differential dropout. So for example, if you were in the PFO closure group, the likelihood of dropout from the trial was 9%. If you were in the antiplatelet group only, it was 15%. This can obviously bias the results, and it's hard to know in what direction they bias the results. But to me, this seems to suggest that patients in the PFO group were probably overall um, more adherent. And it makes sense. If somebody has gone in and done a procedure where they've closed a hole in your heart, you're probably more likely to follow up and to take your antiplatelet agent. So that was a limitation, the noted issue with atrial fibrillation. And then the biggest thing is, is this cost effective? So in the United States, for example, this could cost uh, $20,000, $25,000 per device. I'm curious what it would be in Canada, but that's a big and unanswered question. Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, those are always the next studies that come after an important finding like this is, is it cost effective? It certainly has been raised a lot. Okay, uh, Dr. Freilich, what do you want our listeners to take away from this important trial? So the most important thing is that PFOs should not be ignored, uh, as I've probably done before, especially in a patient with cryptogenic stroke. And then there's two other more subtle points to take away. So this is a massive study. And in the same edition of the New England Journal of Medicine, there were two other studies that showed very similar results, had very similar designs. So this isn't like, a, oh, we should wait for the next randomized trial. No, no, there were three in the same edition. <laughs> this is real. The question is, who is this going to apply to? And for example, last year, there were 70,000 strokes in Canada. One third of those were in patients under the age of 65. One third of those were cryptogenic. And maybe half of those had a PFO. So we're talking 5% of all strokes potentially. But still, it's it's important because for those 5% of people, uh, it looks like it will really change things. Yeah, you know, this certainly caught my eye and it's caught a lot of eyes of colleagues that we all work with and talk to. My only concern, you know, looking at some of those other studies too, is I'm just not sure about using antiplatelets as a compared group to prevent stroke Secondarily, you know, typically in AFib, or if you were sort of invoking that this was due to paradoxical emboli, then you'd be considering full dose anticoagulation with warfarin or a direct oral anticoagulant. I would have loved to see that as a comparator group, uh, which unfortunately they weren't wasn't powered for in one of the other studies. But certainly this is you know not a finding to be ignored, and I think will impact my practice as well. Yeah, I completely agree, and I, I think you're right. It's surprising in that in many circumstances, we don't know what the actual cause of the stroke is, even when there is a PFO. But you're right, if it was from a clot, then anticoagulation would be the ideal treatment. But in the studies I could find, even when there is a PFO, the vast majority of the time, they don't see any evidence of DVT. But yeah, you're right. I'm sure that'll be a future study. Yeah. And and I think at the very least, you know, where I wouldn't send a referral for consideration of PFO closure if I found one in cryptogenic stroke, I absolutely will now, regardless of what treatments you know these trials use. I think that it should be considered moving forward. 
Well, Mike, thank you for that. Um, I'm sure we'll hear a lot about that over the coming weeks. It was three big trials in the New England, and I'm sure it's going to make a large splash in the medical literature. Let's move on to the study that I chose for this week. It is a trial that looks at the impact of an educational intervention to improve, of all things, anticoagulation in atrial fibrillation. And it was published in The Lancet of 2017 by Dr. Vinaranu et al. Cool. So tell me, Kieran, for this study, uh, w- what's the bottom line for listeners? Yeah, so this is an international randomized trial of over just, just over 2,000 patients who had atrial fibrillation. They're followed for just about a year. And if you delivered a multifaceted and multi-level educational program to both the patients and the providers, you could actually significantly improve the overall rates of the use of anticoagulation and subsequently a not unexpected but concomitant reduction in the rates of stroke. So a non-medical intervention that has an important finding, I think, and why, why I'm covering it today. Yeah, I mean, that definitely makes sense to me. And you've probably alluded to this, but to help contextualize like mm, AFib, is it that big of a problem? Yeah, so thankfully, this is an easy one to frame. AFib is common. About 33 million people worldwide, they estimate, are affected by it. We all know that it leads to stroke. So about 20% of all ischemic strokes are actually embolic due to atrial fibrillation. And they're, they're a big deal. They cause major disability in about two-thirds of people and death in about a fifth of people. So they're, they're not to be ignored. Anticoagulation, time and time and time again, trial after trial, we know it reduces the rates of stroke dramatically, probably by about 60% or more as a, as a risk reduction. But where this trial comes in is that the use of anticoagulation is underwhelming, especially if you look in middle-income countries, so less so in Canada, United States, but places like Brazil and some parts of Eastern Europe, they think somewhere around 10 to 40% is the rate of anticoagulation in AFib there. So, you know, we're, we're not really sure what an educational impact will do to try to improve those rates, but, you know, we go to a randomized trial to answer that question. Okay, cool. That makes sense to me. So, yeah, so you mentioned it was a randomized trial. What were some of the... Uh important details of uh, the design here. Yeah, so it's, you know, typical prospective. This is done internationally in five middle-income countries in Argentina, Brazil, China, India, and Romania between 2014 and 2016. All right. And in terms of the patients in the study, what did the inclusion-exclusion look like? So you had to be an adult and you had to have confirmed atrial fibrillation with ECG or monitoring. And they wanted people who were at slightly higher risk. So they used the CHADS VASC score. And you had to have a score of greater than or equal to 2. Or you had to have identified rheumatic valvular disease. So that would be valvular AFib. Now, they excluded people who had a mechanical prosthetic valve. They didn't want valve replacement. If you had shock at the time that you came in for with AFib, then you weren't included. If you weren't expected to live very long or couldn't provide consent, or had an, a contraindication to anticoagulation, you were excluded. Okay. And side note, CHADS VASC or CHADS, what are people using more often? Yeah, I mean, in Canada, for sure, we use CHADS over CHADS VASC. It's just simpler to remember, you know, than what does the VASC stand for and what are the nuances of it. Um, so a good clinical prediction score should be easy to remember and accurate. And the CHADS score is proven to be that way. So Canadian Cardiovascular Society recommends its use. I think the American uh, guidelines recommend the use of either CHADS or CHADS-VASC to risk stratify. 
but internationally, I don't actually know what's what's the preference as far as the scores. Okay, yeah, ch- Chad's it is for me. Then it's simpler to remember. Um, so, uh, what was the actual intervention then in this study? Yeah, so this was a, a cluster randomized trial, and the clusters were the centers instead of the patients themselves to be randomized. And so, basically, you just took these centers in each country and you randomized them in a one-to-one fashion to receive this quality improvement educational intervention. So, you know, you, you, first of all, you, you took the hospitals with, you know, the centers within each country and you matched them based on the type of practice they were, how big that practice was, and how many patients within that practice were proportionally eligible for anticoagulation, just to line up all your centers so that they're kind of doing the same thing. And then there was really kind of two parts to the intervention, which is kind of cool. So the first part is just the education. So families and patients are provided with brochures, web-based video education materials, and encouraged to interact with healthcare teams around anticoagulation for AFib. And then they educated the providers, so they gave them you know, the latest guideline recommendations on anticoagulation and when to do it, emailed them you know, interesting articles, offered webinars, podcasts, etc., to sort of engage the providers and educate them so that they're up to date. The second part of the intervention was a monitoring and feedback aspect. So they systematically identified patients in the study who were not being treated with anticoagulation who would be qualify for it under the current guidelines. Uh, and so they sort of helped the providers review that. And then they also identified patients at risk who were likely not to stay on medications. And so they tried to intervene on those patients and say, look, really, you, you need to take this oral anticoagulation for your AFib. And that overall was thought to improve the adherence. Okay, that makes sense to me. Um, and what was the main outcome they were looking at here? Yeah, so they collected all this data at baseline six months and 12 months with additional phone calls in between. And they really were measuring the change in the proportion of patients who were treated with oral anticoagulants from baseline to evaluation at one year. Okay, cool. And what were the main findings of the study? Yeah, so 2,200 patients were enrolled in the trial. Up to about 70% actually were on anticoagulation at baseline, so quite a significant number who were on anticoagulation to begin with. The median CHADS-VASC score was a, between 3 and 4, so that's sort of an intermediate risk population, not low but not you know severely high. And then if you looked at the education group, so the patients who received the educational intervention, at baseline 68% were on anticoagulation, at six months, 79%, and at one year, 80% were on anticoagulation. So that was a change of 12% absolute numbers. In your control group, your baseline rate was about 64% on anticoagulation. That went up to 67% and stayed there from six months to a year. So only a 3% change. What does that mean? Ultimately, there was a 9% change in the number of patients who were on uh, anticoagulation between the education to the control group. So if you wanted to put that in a number needed to treat or a number needed to educate, that would correspond to 11 patients to receive this to improve anticoagulation rates. That's very impressive. And you said education group, that also included the monitoring feedback uh, aspect? Yeah, yeah, that's the whole component of the of that sort of education arm is the education and the monitoring and feedback. Okay. And any differences if you looked at individuals on anticoagulation at baseline versus not? Yeah, absolutely. The the results are actually all driven by the initiation of anticoagulation. So it's a great question. 
82% of the people who were not on anticoagulation were more likely to go on anticoagulation after receiving education. And, you know, what is the impact beyond just improving anticoagulation in these individuals? Well, as we know about the effectiveness of anticoagulation, the rates of ischemic stroke were actually half of that in the education group compared to the control group. So 2% uh, in the control and 1% in the education group had a stroke. Okay, cool. Uh, any big limitations to uh, discuss? No, I mean, I think it was a well-designed trial in the limitations of having an obvious educational intervention. They did all the things you're supposed to do in a randomized trial. I think the main limitation really is in the applicability of the intervention itself. It it seems to be a fairly labor-intensive intervention, you know, with all of this education, materials you have to create, um, and then this monitoring and feedback that goes on afterwards. So, you know, how much manpower does that take? How much does it cost to run a program like that? And do those costs justify the benefits? Um, especially if you're looking at a country, you know, like Canada or the U.S., where our rates of anticoagulation are even higher than that. So um, I don't know the answer to that, but that's a cost-effectiveness study that could be done, just like in the PFO. Okay. And then did you want to chat about who this study uh, applies to, or should we jump into good stuff? Um, well, I, I'll just mention just sort of the, the typical patient in this study, so you know who was included. Um, it's a 70-year-old, uh, male or female. They live in an urban environment, and they had, you know, as expected previously existing, permanent AFib, intermediate risk for stroke based on their CHAD score, and they've actually, most of them had a remote history of stroke who were taking warfarin at baseline. So a, a fairly typical patient, I think, you'd see with AFib. Okay. And then I should ask you, because you asked me, um, will this change your practice? I mean, I think the findings here are geared more towards sort of center level or system level policies and not so much on the individual physician. But, you know, if you're a family health team or you're a private clinic out in the community, you might think about setting up some sort of a AFib educational center, like much like we have for diabetes in Canada, because... Perhaps this is what's needed to help centralize education around anticoagulation for patients with AFib. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I want like I wonder is it the education that's the winning ticket here, or is it the audit and feedback? And when physicians like when I know I'm not doing as well as like Dr. Kieran Quinn, then maybe I'm going to step up my game. Like I just I wonder what's driving these results. Yeah, uh, great great point, Mike. It's a fairly rare occurrence that uh, you're not doing as well as me. I think usually you're better than me most of the time. But never the, nevertheless, if someone's watching, you have a tendency to perform better. Fantastic. I appreciate all the insight. Let's move on to my favorite part of the show. As you all know, it's the Good Stuff segment where we're talking about what we are reading about. Mike, what is catching your eye this week? Okay, continuing on with the anticoagulation theme, really cool story I saw. Essentially, a cardiologist is in the audience of a lecturer. She's taking a course, and it's about business ethics or something. And she notices that the professor is like a little short of breath and looks down and notice her leg is a little swollen and looks up and sees her neck veins are a little distended. So then in the break, she goes up to the prof. She's like, hey, I have an ethical dilemma. I have an ethical question. Can I ask you? And the prof's like, of course. Like, we're teaching about ethics. And she's like, well, it's actually about you. Like, I think you have a blood clot and you need to go to an emergency room immediately. <laughs> so unfortunately, the professor doesn't. Professor gets on a plane. The doctor told her to not get on a plane, flies home, but then went to see the doctor. And she had bilateral massive PE. And this cardiologist saved her life. So anticoagulation for the win. 
Wow. And I bet she passed her ethics course as well. Fantastic. <laughs> oh, and actually, this works for a segue. This works so perfectly. Kieran, what's your good stuff about? Yeah, I was just going to say, let's let's not thin it out too much here. It's brilliant. Speaking of ethics, I got to ask you, Mike, have you ever been on a plane or in my case, a subway, and you heard an overhead announcement that was calling for a medical professional, or is there a doctor on board? Not yet, but I'm waiting every single flight I go on. Well, I have. I was on the Toronto Transit Commission, this TTC, our public transit system in Toronto, and I had the same thought process as Dr. Gregory Eastwood, who writes this article, did. And I wonder, hmm, who else on board is qualified to help but hasn't responded maybe or is there somebody perhaps, maybe a Dr. Freilich on board who is better qualified than I? Or perhaps, why do I respond if I go to the scene where they're asking for help? Why did, why did I feel compelled to respond? So doc, Dr. Gregory Eastwood, who's from Sunny Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, um, he thought about this, and he's written a great piece in JAMA about it, which we'll put on the blog for re- readers who are interested. The law is, is this. Yeah, it's it's pretty neat, and, and I really, really think you should read it. It's a really great article. But the law in, in the United States, Canada, and United Kingdom is that physicians do not have the legal duty to assist unless you, for some fluke reason, happen to know that patient who was unfortunate to have that medical emergency on the plane that you were on. But in many European countries and in Australia, physicians actually do have the duty uh, by law to respond to those uh to those emergencies. And it raises for me an overall interesting question is, when am I a physician? Am I a physician all the time uh, or just when I'm at work in a work role? So ethics, existential questions, (laughs) planes, trains, and automobiles. Nice. You never know when you'll be called. And uh, and that's it. That's all I got for this week. Nice. Nice. That that was fun, Karen. (laughs) Okay. Thanks, Mike, for joining us. We look forward to having you back on the show as always, and I hope you enjoy sunny Boston. Thanks, buddy. Good to be here. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. You can read more at healthydebate.ca slash roundstable, follow us on Twitter at roundstable, or on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. The Rounds Table would not be possible without our fantastic team of on-air and behind-the-scenes members. Thank you to our producer, Emily Hughes, audio editor, Emilio Garcia Flores, communications director, Anthony Maher, segment developer, Shaliza Halani, and faculty mentor and founder of The Rounds Table, Amol Verma. I am your weekly host, Kieran Quinn. Join us next week for an irreverent discussion of the latest medical research, because who knows what they have in store for us. 